even though each one of us comes to this retreat from our own life, the momentum of our life, and we come for our own reasons, we are essentially all here for the same reason. Some deeply personal but universal uh, wish or aspiration to, uh, to understand ourselves, to know ourselves better, to be a better human being. Maybe some of you have the aspiration to be liberated or maybe just to get away for a week or anything in between is good enough reason to be here. And while we may look like we come from many different directions and we come from many different stages of life or activities of life to be here, we really can recognize the universality of our being here in what is a traditional practice on retreats like this, which is the taking of the refuges and precepts. And I want to speak about the taking of the refuges in a way to help you um, see the refuges, even though they're traditional, to see them as a practice, a way of uh, reminding ourselves of our aspiration and the direction we're going with our practice uh, in our life. You know, to take refuge means to rely on or to find a sense of security in or to feel protected by something. And in most of our life, we rely on or take refuge in our career, our finances, our relationships. And this is good. This is normal. This is to be expected. And it's immensely valuable. We do find a significant refuge in these aspects of our life. But we all know that there's other conditions in life which no amount of money or no advanced degree or no career position or no relationship can really address. And so we need another refuge. We need to look for another way of being in our life uh, and finding something of greater yet subtler refuge. And in this practice, we take refuge, or it is traditional to take refuge in what we call the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And most of you know the Buddha, most of you know the Dharma, and most of you know, or will, uh, the Sangha, but I want to speak about it in a few different ways. But first I want to mention that when I first started practice like this, when I went to my first retreat like this, it was an accident. It was a mistake. It was totally unexpected. I didn't know that I was going to a retreat. Uh, I was very naive, 
very confused. I thought I was going on a holiday. And I ended up in the retreat, a two-week retreat, and having paid my registration fee, I said, oh, what the heck? I might as well go through with it. And before then, I didn't know anybody who meditated. I didn't have any interest in meditation. I certainly wasn't spiritual, and had never heard of Buddhism. But somehow, I guess in retrospect, I could say my karma impelled me to, to, to do this, and well, here I am, 35 years later, um, enticing others to do the same thing. <laughs> but for many of you, it's not an accident. It's a, it's a well-thought-out uh, decision and a commitment that you have. But for those of you who are still hesitant, doubtful, or maybe here for the first time, I want to tell a story. After that first retreat, I got ex excited and interested in the Dharma, and I went to retreats like this for, for about uh, eight or nine years in the States. And I went with a, a variety of different teachers and, and practiced as best I could, which frankly was pretty bad. But nevertheless, <laughs> I was interested in just sitting. I just wanted to see what I could do with this mind and this body and what I could understand. But after nine years of retreats in the States, I really wanted, I, re I had a sense that I really hadn't gotten the full benefit of what this practice could offer. So I wanted to take a period of time and really go uh, into it as fully as I could, as deeply as I could, as far as I could, until I didn't want to practice anymore. So I went to Burma and uh, to a monastery where I knew the abbot and started practicing there. And of course, when I went to Burma, it was my first time out of the country, out of the U.S., and it was very, well, put it mildly, it was very foreign. <laughs> it was, you know, the climate was totally different, the people looked different, their clothing was different, the food was different. Everything about my being in Burma was unfamiliar. And so, quite naturally, I felt pretty insecure, vulnerable, a little bit overwhelmed, but I was determined. I knew what I was there for, and in the monastery where I went to practice, there's one experience that I remember as being um, very powerful in reaffirming to me the uh, wisdom of my decision. In this monastery, there was uh, a sitting before breakfast. And breakfast was usually around 5.30, and there was a sitting from 4.30 to 5.30. And at the end of the sitting, we would come out of the meditation hall. We'd wait alongside the, our teacher's cottage uh, for the breakfast bell to ring. And when the breakfast bell would ring, of course, we would file in single file line up to the dining room and eat. But before the bell would ring, each of the meditation halls would chant the refuges and precepts. So first there was a meditation hall up by the uh, dining room, which was all women. And this meditation hall could hold 15 to 1,800 women, 
It was a huge hall. And sometimes there were only a few hundred, and sometimes there were 15 or 1,800. And they would start chanting the refuges and precepts. And when Burmese women chant the refuges and precepts, they are very devout and confident and energetic and loud. <laughs> and I was standing down over the hill in the shadows of the uh, cottage, and they'd start chanting. And it was really powerful, really. It was, I couldn't really call it melodious, but it was interesting. And after they had chanted for 30 seconds or so, there was another uh, meditation hall a little further down the hill. It was a two-story meditation hall for women, 500 on each floor. And so one floor would start chanting, and they'd be 30 seconds behind the first hall, and then the second floor would start chanting, they'd be another 10 seconds behind the, the other floor. And shortly after that, there was a, a meditation hall of men and monks across the, across the road, across the path, and that could hold about 1,200. And so they would start chanting, and then further down the hill below us, there was another meditation hall of men and monks that could hold 800 to 1,000. So there were, there were a lot of people in this meditation center at times. And so there'd be two or three, 4,000 men and women chanting this, their taking of the refuge and the taking of the precepts as an expression of their aspiration in their practice, as an expression of their commitment, as an expression of their faith and their interest in, in doing it. And at first I felt like I was quite separate from them because I didn't even know the refuges and precepts. But in time I came to have the same appreciation for the practice and the same dedication to practice. And I realized that this practice that we do is universal. It works for everyone. It's timeless in that it works for men and women at the time of the Buddha. It works for men and women now, whether we're in Burma or in Australia or in the Europe or the West. And it was such a connecting experience for me that it overrode or put aside this feelings of being alone or in a foreign land or strange or different. And it really made me feel welcomed and connected to them because I too felt that same aspiration and commitment. So what does it mean to take refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha? And how can we take this chanting, which has been done every day by hundreds of thousands of men and women for the past 2,500 years, how can we make it something other than just a meaningless ritual? But how can we make it a, a practice that is really supportive to our efforts in being here? The Buddha, as you know, was a historical being, a human being, just like us, who, by all accounts, and by whatever you know about the Buddha, 
you really have to acknowledge was pretty special. Because to be a Buddha means to be awake. And the, the history of the one who became the Buddha is just phenomenal. The conditions that he chose to live with in order to develop the qualities of the awakened mind. Generosity, compassion, understanding, energy, uh, equanimity, loving kindness. It's just a tremendous effort on the part of the Buddha. And then the one who became the Buddha had this extraordinarily powerful mind and profound wisdom, willing to teach what he knew or to offer the understanding that he knew to anyone who asked freely to offer what he knew to anyone who was sincere in their own wish to be free, to be free of suffering, to be free of fear, to be free of confusion. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, we sometimes recognize it as the historical Buddha that we take refuge in, thinking that, well, if he can do it, why can't I? And that's a good thought. If he can do it, well, why can't I? Because, in fact, we can. You know, we have all of the requisites, if you might look at it that way. We're alive, we have a mind, we have interests, we have our own energy. If you put your mind to it, if you make the decision, if you aspire to awaken, no one can stop you. It is your own, the forces in your own mind that will allow you to awaken or that will, you know, challenge you in your efforts. But it is your own mind that is the, the field to be played with. And so it's important to consider that we're here under our own inspiration, our own direction, our own choice. And we can make of it what we choose. We have the potential to awaken. To take refuge in the Buddha also means we take refuge in the potential within this mind to awaken. Each one of us has this potential. Each one of us can be generous. Each one of us can be wise and understanding. Each one of us can be patient and loving. Although we, we all can readily acknowledge that those may not yet be the default setting of our mind, nevertheless, we can see that we do experience these qualities. And with some reminding, we can experience them more frequently. This is the path of practice. We have this potential that can be developed. If we remind ourselves or if others remind us, and we take it upon ourselves to cultivate these states of mind, we are taking refuge in the potential which in time, through effort, will be fulfilled. So to take refuge in the Buddha means to take refuge in the historical Buddha, but also to take refuge in 
the potential within our own mind to awaken, to become or to acquire the knowledge and the compassion that the Buddha had. And we do that by being aware. This is the third element of taking refuge in the Buddha. When the Buddha was asked, are you a god? Are you a, an angel? Are you a superhuman? What's up with you? You're pretty radiant. He said, I'm none of those things, but I am awake. He's just awake. And each one of us can be awake in any moment, in every moment. And this is the practice, this is the capacity that we have. And so when we take refuge in the Buddha, we take refuge in our capacity to be awake in each moment. And to be awake means to remember in each moment that you're here. Here I am. Here it is. It's happening. Awareness is happening. And we don't have to go looking for it. We just have to remember. Presence of mind in each moment. Things happen. Awareness is there to experience it. When we recognize that awareness, we are fulfilling the life of the Buddha. We are doing what the Buddha did or doing what the Bodhisattva did in order to become the Buddha, being aware. So to take refuge in the Buddha is taking refuge in the historical Buddha, our potential to awaken, and the practice or the uh, capacity to be aware in each moment. To take refuge in the Dharma, or the second of the refuges, <coughs> The Dharma also has several meanings, and maybe foremost among them is the Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha, what the Buddha taught in order to point to this path of practice to be cultivated, to be developed, in order to free the mind from its limitations. We've all heard something of the Buddha's teaching. Something has resonated with us to encourage us to be here, to hear more of the Buddha's teachings. And yet, some of what the Buddha taught is pretty subtle, pretty, well, complex in some ways, not, not always obvious. And so to take refuge in the Dharma means to take refuge in the teachings of the Buddha. And what Kamala and I will be offering during this retreat is the teachings of the Buddha as we have heard them, as we have practiced them, as we have understood them, and as we express them. There are many ways to express the truth. The Buddha had his way, and we try our best to uh, use the words of the Buddha to, to point to what needs to be known. So when we take refuge in the Dharma, we aspire to take refuge in the teachings of the Buddha. There's another meaning of the word Dharma, and it means the law. The law means 
the way things are. We could say, well, you know, the law of gravity is a, a natural law. You throw a ball in the air. The law says it will come back to Earth. The law of another natural law says that if you plant an apple seed, you will get an apple tree. You don't get a mango tree. You get an apple tree. This is the law. We may not be able to explain it, but we can observe it, that this is the way it is. Well, so too there is a law governing the unfolding of the mind, or conditioning, or directing the unfolding of the mind. Karma is one of those laws, the law of karma. There is the law of the activity of the mind. The, the stream of consciousness flowing through each one of us is not random. It's not haphazard. It is governed by recognizable laws. If we pay attention, if we observe, we'll see them. So to take refuge in the Dharma means to take refuge in the way things are. However we observe it is the way things are. Take refuge in that. Let that be good enough. Let that be adequate for you to feel safe, secure, protected, at ease. Whatever you experience. The third meaning of the word Dharma is to refer to everything we experience. Every sensation in the body, every emotion in the heart, every thought in the mind is a Dhamma. To take refuge in the Dhamma means to take refuge in your immediate momentary experience. Of course, we can't always feel safe. We don't always feel protected. We, all, we don't always feel at ease with our experience. And so, when we take refuge, we are reaffirming our aspiration to try to take a refuge in a momentary experience. So even though we can't yet always find a refuge in our experience, we are aspiring to, and we remind ourselves by taking the refuge. So taking refuge in the Sangha means to find a place of safety, refuge, a protection in the community of those who practice. And the most immediate community for us is ourselves. This group of 50 or 60 of us that will be here for a week, or for most, for some part of the week, uh, practicing and to feel as, as much as we can, to feel at ease and to, to rely on one another. We're here, we're all well-intentioned, we all have a similar aspiration, and so we can relax. We don't have to perform, we don't have to be on guard, we don't have to uh, suspect or feel suspicious or, or feel anxious about that. We may, but to the extent that we take refuge in the Sangha, we aspire to feel at ease and safe within this community. Sometimes in the course of doing practice like this, we come across terrain of the heart or terrain of the mind which is 
fearful, which is anxiety producing, which is uncomfortable, and we will want to feel secure. We'll want to feel safe. And so if we have taken the refuge in the Sangha sincerely and we understand this is the community we're seeking to feel as a refuge, then it's more likely. We can look around the room or we can look around the dining room or we can watch others. We can notice others as they walk and feel at ease, relaxed, not uh, uptight or not kind of anxious about being here amongst us. There's another meaning or another group that is considered the Sangha when we take refuge in the Sangha, and that is the monks and nuns that have committed their lives to practicing these teachings and freeing their hearts. And maybe most immediately, it's, we can recognize it in the, the monks at the nearby monastery or the nuns at the somewhat nearby, I'm not sure where it is, but the nuns at the, over there, somewhere nearby nunnery, because they have made a significant uh, commitment in their life to, to practice these uh, teachings uh, for as long as they can, as sincerely as they can. And these lineages have been going on for or were established more than 2,500 years ago. This is a significant commitment of human effort. Why did they do that? Why do they do that? Well, whatever it is that they have found of value, we can aspire to also take refuge in that. And so when we take refuge in the Sangha, we are aspiring to appreciate, acknowledge, have gratitude for, and even emulate the commitment and practice of monks and nuns. Maybe the most uh, refined sangha that we aspire to take refuge in are those monks and nuns, men and women, who have realized what the Buddha taught, have realized some stage of liberation, who have really freed their heart, freed their mind from suffering and the causes of suffering. Because it is they who can offer the confirmation for us that the teachings of the Buddha are indeed effective in enabling one to reach the end of suffering. Having a guide that you trust, that you can trust, who can confirm to you the direction that you're traveling is invaluable. These 
enlightened beings or these awakening or awakened beings are our guides. Without them, we'd be wandering around in the confusion and chaos of our own mind. And if you've ever looked at your mind, you'll know that it's not easy to figure it out or to understand what is going on there. And so to have a reliable guide, a whole community of men and women who understand the mind, understand the heart, is just an invaluable resource to us if we can trust them, if we can believe them, if we can allow ourselves to take refuge in them. And so when we take refuge in the Sangha, we are acknowledging our aspiration, our wish to be able to take refuge in this group of awakened or awakening beings. In this way, when we take refuges, we are acknowledging our aspiration to develop the potential of awakening within ourselves by aspiring to find a refuge in the way things are for us right now, moment by moment, and taking as our guide those who have gone before us or those who are walking beside us on this same path of awakening. In the monastery, as I mentioned, where I was practicing in Burma, there's another experience that confirmed to me the value of taking refuge in the Sangha. As I mentioned, there was a sitting before breakfast that ended around 5.30, and then the bell would ring, or the gong would ring at the dining hall, and those who were practicing at the time would file up the hill, walk up the hill to go to the dining room. But every year at this monastery, on the second weekend of December, there was a festival. And it was a festival in honor of the founder of this tradition, Mahasi Sayada, who was a, uh, a Burmese monk uh, of the last century who started a center in Rangoon in 40, 1947 where he taught lay people, men and women like ourselves, who were not monks and nuns. And it was an extraordinary difference or achievement that he was able to teach men and women uh, in the matter of a month or two or three to practice in, in this way and to, to really be able to confirm for themselves the value and the teachings of the Buddha. So in honor of his life and his teachings and his scholarship, the elders of the tradition would come together in Rangoon for four or five days of of celebration. So <clears throat> four or five hundred monks who were the elders of the tradition would come to Rangoon and they'd all come with a handful of supporters and two or three hundred of the elder nuns of this tradition who were teachers would come and they would also come with a handful of supporters. So there were again 
several thousand people in the monastery. Now, when monks get together in a group, they always do things according to seniority. So the monk who has been a monk the longest gets to do things first. And those who have been a monk for the least amount of time come last. So when the bell would ring to go to breakfast, one of the monks who helped run the monastery would step out into the pathway and he would say, 65 wasa. That means any monk who's been a monk for 65 years. That means he's at least 85 years old. Could go to breakfast. And sometimes one <laughs> with a cane or a helper would come out in, in of the shadows and start walking up the hill. And then he would say, 64 wasa. A wasa is a three-month retreat. Any monk who's done 64 three-month retreats could go to breakfast. And there'd be another one, 63, 62, and he'd keep going down the line. When he got down to, you know, 35, meaning a monk who was 55 years old, usually, then they could go to, to breakfast. And there'd be a handful. When they got down to 20 wasa, meaning they were somewhere around 40 years old, there were, there were dozens that would get in line at a time. When they would get down to one or two wasa, then I could go. <laughs> and I would step out into the, into the pathway and get in line, and I was the last monk. But as I was walking to breakfast, I'd look at this long line of monks ahead of me, going up the hill, around the corner, to the dining room and out of sight. And somewhere, somehow, I imagined that somewhere at the head of the line was the Buddha. Because this line of monks goes all the way back to the time of the Buddha. And the Buddha said to those around him, if you can see things this way, you too can be free of suffering. And those who heard, practiced, realized, and turned to those around them and said, if you can see things this way, you too can be free of suffering. And that teaching had come down the line from the Buddha through all of those elders to the 20th century where it arrived at Mahasi Sayadaw, who heard practiced, realized, and taught Saidar Upandita, who heard, realized, or practiced, realized, and taught me, who heard and practiced so far. <laughs> and I used to think I was the last person in the line, because I was at that particular time, but I've now come to realize that I'm not the last person in the line. There are untold generations of unborn humans who will want these teachings in the future, who will need these teachings in the future. And the only way they'll have them is because we practice. 
because we hear them, we practice them, and we realize them, and we continue to offer to those who are interested coming up behind us. We all are part of the Sangha, and it doesn't stop with us. It's hard to do this practice, to awaken to our conditioning, to free our hearts from suffering and the causes of suffering. But when we consider that what we are acquiring is the knowledge and the wisdom for future generations, it can inspire us to make an effort beyond our immediate apparent ability. Sometimes it's painful, sometimes it's fearful, sometimes we feel doubt, we feel casual. But when we remember what it, what it means to take refuge in the Sangha and who the Sangha is, it can inspire us to Make our, make our best effort. So each morning, we'll be taking the refuges and precepts uh, here uh, on the retreat.